Chapter Twelve of Daylight Land by W. H. H. Murray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twelve, Sabbath among the Mountains. It was the Sabbath day, and we were at field. With us were a company tourists like ourselves who had decided to spend our Sabbath among the mountains, making of it a day of rest and truth. And if among the mountains were better than at field, under the shadow of Mount Stephen and with a multitude of majestic altitudes all around us the afternoon was well advanced and all of us quite an audience in numbers were grouped in the piazza when we saw a gentleman strolling down the track toward the hotel he was tall bronzed and had an alpine knapsack on his back and a notebook in his hand there there comes the clergyman we have been praying for all day cried a young lady to her companion at my elbow here comes our clergyman and now we can have a regular service won't it be nice and her pink palms met in a way to express the fervor of her religious enthusiasm jenny dear said her companion a motherly looking lady you are always jumping to your conclusions how do you know the gentleman is a clergyman at all ah oh, i know he is she reiterated with emphasis but how do you know the other insisted well because because he doesn't look a bit like one she replied nevertheless in spite of the young lady's assertion the gentleman who was slowly approaching us did look somewhat like a clergyman and when he had joined us and we had engaged him in conversation our impression as to his clerical status was deepened for he spoke with much feeling and with true spiritual discernment of the religious relations of nature but whatever doubt remained was suddenly dissipated when he opened his knapsack, for as he did so the leaves of a manuscript, closely and careful written, were plainly discernible. "'My dear sir,' said the judge, "'I cannot but consider your coming as providential. This is the Lord's Day, and here we, a company of Christian wanderers, find ourselves spending the holy day among the everlasting hills. We desire to hold a religious service, but ours is a flock without a shepherd.' for there is not a clergyman among all this large number of tourists. But now we are, if I mistake not, delivered from our dilemma, for you, my dear sir, are, are you not a clergyman? I'm sorry that I'm compelled to disappoint you, answered the man, but I am not a clergyman. Not a clergyman? exclaimed the judge. Surely, sir, that manuscript there must be— No, it is not a sermon, interrupted the stranger, smiling. It is only a story. I think a story is as good as a sermon any time, cried the young lady who had been so confident that the newcomer was a clergyman. And if it isn't too awfully jolly, I wish the gentleman would read it to us. My eyes ache from looking, and I would like to close them and see with my ears, as Papa says, for half an hour. My dear sir, exclaimed the judge, the young lady has voiced my feelings admirably, and I doubt not the wishes of the company and if your story is not of too light a nature i pray you read it to us and feel that you are doing us all a positive service i can promise you sir an attentive audience the story i would read you is sober enough for the day responded the man and suggests a theme fit to be meditated on within the shadow of these awful surroundings even nor will it be of less value because it is of the nature of a personal experience if you'll arrange yourselves to easily hear me I will gladly read you the story. In a moment some fifty of us were grouped around the stranger, 
and certainly no preacher or author ever had a more attentive audience than we gave him as he read the strange tale and surely it would take a long search to find a sermon weighted with a more startling thought at least so many of us said so at the end of it the two graves it was in the autumn of eighteen seventy eight that i found myself riding through that portion of canada which borders the northern shore of the ottawa some hundred miles above its junction with the st lawrence the day was one of a series peculiar to that time of the year and that section of the country the heat of summer had departed chilled southward by the advancing frost which the arctic cold had posted in advance to give warning of its approach but in the valleys and along the hedgerows which skirted the southern exposure of the mountains the delicious warmth still lingered as if loath to leave the pleasant haunts where it had so long tarried happy in the music of the running brooks and the birds that sang in the odorous bushes indeed it seemed as if here and there it had determined to resist its savage foe for in nooks where the russet leaves lay thickest and in the wedge-like crevices of ledges it kept almost its august warmth as if it felt safe to await a fiercer attack behind such formidable barricades i had ridden already a goodly distance and neither i nor my horse was in the mood to hurry the reins lay loosely on his neck and he picked his way along the grass-grown path with a leisurely step peculiar to his species when neither their inclination nor that of their riders urged them to a faster gait perhaps he as well as i enjoyed not merely the slowness of the pace but the nature of the surroundings also for his large observant eyes studied the flaming bushes as closely as mine and to his senses the mingled odors of the dying grasses and withered leaves blended with the fragrance of the evergreens that live on through winter and summer alike may have been as grateful as they were to mine as i breathed them in i had just turned a curve in the road and was descending a gentle slope a mountain on my left hand a stretch of level woodland on my right when i suddenly came upon a clearing of some three acres in extent enclosed by a fence age had weakened the settings of the posts and had no longer kept the trueness of the original lines but sagged and swayed at different points while here and there the winds of winter had blown sections of it prone to the ground the grasses had grown through the palings and masses of running vines formed over them whose leaves were now aflame with color i instinctively checked my horse to more closely inspect this unexpected opening in the woods involuntarily looking as i did so for the house or the ruins of the house that one day stood as i naturally supposed in the clearing and it was not until i had quite reined my horse into the cleared space passing through a gap which the winds had made in the enclosure and looked the field over more closely that i discerned that it had never been intended for human habitation at least not for the habitation of the living but had rather been set apart for the repose of the dead the space in short into which i had ridden was a cemetery no sooner had i made this discovery than impelled by curiosity in part and in part by reverence i dismounted and throwing the reins over the post which had once been one of the pillars of the main entrance i strolled further into the solemn field the emotions such as would be natural to a man entering a graveyard thus suddenly discovered in the depths of the woods here i said to myself the former settlers of this once inhabited but now deserted region lie buried a majestic place for a burial ground truly 
and I glanced upward at the surrounding mountains which lifted their vast sides around about the vale. Truly, I continued, here is a fitting place for the weary to rest after the trials and fatigues of life, the aged who had long borne the heat and burden of the day, and they who were suddenly checked in manhood's swift career, husband and wife, parent and child, all could here find the peace which comes after strife, and that sweet rest which waits on human toil. It is pleasant to think that nature, after the fret and fever of life are over, so kindly provided them, amid the very scenes where they toiled and doubtless suffered, a place to repose. Thus moralizing, I cast my eyes about to discover the number and the grouping of the graves, not doubting that I should find many, and with them monumental evidences of however humble a sort that affection had remembered them when they had passed away. But to my astonishment I could discover only two graves within the entire enclosure. These were situated side by side on a slight elevation that swelled its summit near the center of the enclosure. Confident that further searching would reveal more to me, I made a careful inspection of the field until I had traversed it from corner to corner, and had convinced myself that this strange graveyard was so not only because of its location, a place set apart for the dead where there were none to die, but also because, large as it was, it held but two graves. A stranger graveyard than this, I said to myself, was never seen. For all the burial places that men ever set apart, of such goodly dimensions as this, I doubt if there be another on the face of the whole earth so sparsely populated. The tenantry of kindred fields is generally crowded enough, and he who has the fortune to occupy a place therein never lacks for neighbors. I will approach the graves and see what memorial affectionate custom has traced upon these lonely slabs. So saying, I drew near to the two graves and proceeded to inspect them more closely. They were placed some eight feet apart, both facing to the south, it was evident from the size of the mounds that they had been builded for adult bodies, and apparently near the same time. The grasses had matted thickly over both, and a running vine whose main root had sprung from the earth, equidistant between the two, had set a branch out impartially toward each. It had grown so luxuriantly that it embraced either mound, and sent its creeping tendrils even to the top of the two short, narrow slabs of plainly wrought stone such as rude skill might easily have quarried from the edge of the neighboring ravine. It seemed as if nature had, by the growth of her vine, tenderly united in suggestive unity the two mounds, which, standing farther apart and without connection, would have been lonely indeed. Surely, I said to myself, this is a quaint and touching spectacle, only two graves in all this field, and they, lying side by side on this little eminence, and so affectingly connected, is there some sweet conscience in nature which forbids her to decorate the one and leaves the other unadorned? And I remembered the saying that the rain falleth alike on the just and the unjust. I doubt not, I continued, that these who sleep here were brothers, who had nursed at one maternal breast, who had labored in this vale and on these hills side by side, and who struck down by death, perhaps simultaneously, were brought by reverential hands in the slow and solemn fashion of the country, and with priestly benediction laid side by side. Or perhaps they were two friends strongly attached, some David and Jonathan of this forest glade, who, being so closely united in life as to furnish a proverb of loving companionship, in death were not divided. 
Filled with such pleasant imagings, I kneeled on one of the mounds, and with my hand gently moved aside the viny tracery that garnished its white surface with ruddy ornament, in order to read what might be carved beneath. James Flynn, aged sixty years, eight months, and nine days. Born April 10th, 17. Died November 14th, 18. Then I turned toward the other mound, and kneeling on it, lifted the vine from the face of the other slab, and read, John Peters, aged sixty-one years, born May 19th, 17, died November 14th, 18. Buried the same day, I said, rising to my feet. Buried the same day, and for these thirty years their dust has moldered side by side. Old men, too, honest and honored, I doubt not. Brothers they certainly were not, but friends they must have been, or surely they would not have found such close vicinage in death. Old men who had lived their lives out until the crescent of their youth had come to the full rounded orb of its perfect sphere, happy in having outlived their passions and the frailties and bitterness that comes therefrom, happy indeed were they, I added, in having entered before they came to their tomb that peace and pleasantness of mood which give to the aged the chiefest beauty of their earthly life and the perfect preparation for the life to come. While I had thus been pleasantly musing, I had almost unconsciously been walking toward my horse, and with my mind still filled with the thought of the two graves I had so suddenly found, and was to soon leave, I placed my reins on the neck of the animal and my foot in the stirrup, saying as I did so, I would that I knew the history of the two graves thus so strangely placed in this quiet field, and of the two men who have slept and are destined to sleep so long in them side by side. I can tell you the history of the two men. I turned so suddenly at the unexpected sound of a human voice that the speaker was checked in the midst of the sentence he was uttering. He was a man, old and white-headed and bowed with years, for he carried a staff in one hand and was even then leaning heavily upon it. I noticed also that the hand that grasped the stick trembled and shook with that peculiar tremulousness which so often accompanies the weakening of muscle power. Was it something in the fit and color of his garments? Was it something in the dignity of his mien? Or was it because of the peaceful expression of his countenance? From whichever one of these causes, perhaps from them all combined, I conceived that he belonged to the clergy. "'Reverend sir,' said I, releasing my foot from the stirrup and turning toward him, "'Reverend, sir,' said I, and I uncovered my head. "'I am journeying through the country with a companion who is now on the road some miles behind me, and coming suddenly upon this opening. I observed the two graves yonder, and judged that this was a graveyard. Moved by the impulse common to human hearts in so solemn a place, I entered the enclosure to discover what memorials affection had reared above those who sleep.' but to my astonishment I have been able to find only two graves in all the field, and I was marveling, as you interrupted me, at the strange spectacle, so strange that I doubt if its equal can be found in all the world, a spectacle of a graveyard with only two graves. I doubt not, responded the old man, that your observation is correct, for though I have seen many graveyards myself, and helped to lay many to sleep therein, I saw no other allotted to men's final repose, in which the number of those who sleep is so small. And he added, I would that these were not here, 
for a sadder lesson than they teach has never been my lot to learn and the recollection they recall as i behold them lying here alone forms one of the saddest memories of my life you speak reverend sir for i judge you to be a clergyman as if you had knowledge of them the old man paused a moment before he replied his eyes were turned toward the two graves and in them was a far-away look as if they ranged backward across the dim distance of many years then he added i officiated at the service when those two graves were made indeed i exclaimed indeed then may i hope to learn something of their history and how it comes about that only two sleep in the sacred field and they sleep side by side i should like to know the lives of those who are its only occupants surely there must have been some peculiar history attached to them some tender passage in their lives a lifelong sympathy of a notable and noble sort to account for the fact that two who by their names it would seem were not akin should thus be lying in their last sleep like brothers inseparable even in death your surmises are far from correct replied the venerable man they were not brothers as you have suggested they were not even friends they were bitter enemies enemies exclaimed i enemies great heavens how came they then to be buried side by side your astonishment is but natural was the answer it was strange it was unnatural it was even irreverent but it was in accordance with their wish i may say their express command i pray you said i rehitching my horse at the post i pray you if your leisure permits tell me the tale for certain it is that my mind cannot conceive why two enemies should desire to be buried side by side surely human life is long enough to exhaust the force of human hatred or is it a part of that fierce fire which never quenched not even by the waters of death or the smothering dampness of the grave i will comply with your request responded the aged man for i am weary with walking and would willingly rest a little space before i pursue my way you must know then he continued as he seated himself on a stone opposite me you must know that i visited this place partly that i might see once more the beauties of nature in this secluded spot and partly that my eyes might behold again the scenes that were once so familiar and i may add so grateful to them thirty years ago this little vale now so reposeful resounded with the hum of human activity in yonder mountainside you can find a shaft sunk by the miner's skill in search of the rich ores which were then believed to lie buried within its sides here in the depths of the forest a village sprang up as it were in a day and men of many nationalities came pouring into the secluded glen in what proved to be a vain search for gold providence guided me to this spot even with the first wagon train that penetrated here and here i stayed and ministered the best i might to their eternal good until the last wagon left the glen forever ah those were stirring and noisy times mused the old man as if he once more saw the bustle and heard the noise of the busy encampment a hundred axes swept the mighty trees from yonder slope and half a hundred cabins rose as by magic on the banks of yonder brawling stream 
the giant pines that then stood where is now this clearing furnished the walls of their habitations and from yonder rock by which that aged beech tree stands i preached the best i might to those who came seeking earthly wealth of that other treasure which neither moth nor rust can corrupt nor thieves break through and steal i do not doubt i said as the venerable man paused a moment in the recital of his early efforts to lead the men to be wise that your endeavours were as successful as i feel they were earnest they were not wholly in vain replied the other reverently for i had the everlasting word and the spirit that quickeneth to assist me and even the foolishness of preaching did not wholly fail for with two exceptions the toilers in the mines and they who tilled the open spaces where nature made tillage possible lived in peace with one another and outwardly at least kept the laws of god i said all but two these two were men of another country and another clime both were dark of face and mood and scarred in unknown fights it was whispered that they had met in deadly conflict years before and that the scars of each were the wounds made by the other but none knew perhaps for certain for they were a sort little given to speech and told their history to none that they hated each other they did not conceal and their hatred was that quiet and deadly sort most painful to see they were not loved by any they were even shunned by those with whom they toiled indeed they were the dark spirits of the camp for it might scarce be called a settlement and their presence was universally regretted and yet they made no disturbance but whether from the peculiar orderliness of their surroundings or because each with the patience of deadly cunning bided his time there was no outbreak between them for two years they worked side by side by a strange fortune for the cabins were built in common and then drawn for by lot the one drew number twenty and the other twenty-one and so they lived side by side in silent hatred it was a terrible way to live i remarked for the strange tale interested me deeply and certainly a stranger fortune never befell two foes than to thus meet in a foreign land scarred by each other's blows and toil side by side by day and live in the houses that almost touch hating each other with terrible hatred and yet never exchanging word or blow it was indeed returned the old man a terrible way indeed and i did what i could to bring them to a better mind god knows i labored with them and strove in prayer on their behalf but my labor was in vain and my prayers for some wise purpose were never answered for their hearts remained hardened and i could make no salutary impression on their wicked souls the mines which at first had been productive suddenly gave out and no longer paid the expenses of working them and at the end of two years they were abandoned and the settlement prepared to disperse when scarcely a dozen remained of these myself among the number were preparing to follow those who were already gone the two men who had made no preparations to go and were evidently intending to remain for the purpose i doubt not of meeting once more in savage conflict with none near to thwart their deadly intent were suddenly taken sick humanity forbade that we should desert them and we tarried until the end should appear 
but their sickness was unto death, and we had not long to wait. They died the same night, the one but a few moments before the other. I attended at their deathbeds, but had no other reward than the consciousness of duty done. The one that died first showed no concern save for one thing. Asked but one question, would the other die? A brother miner standing by his side answered, he will not live an hour. For an instant the light of a wild fierce satisfaction blazed balefully from the eyes that were already half eclipsed behind the shadow of death, and in what seemed to us to be an imprecation, breathed in an unknown tongue, the wretched man straightened himself in his bed, and with a deadly scowl still on his face, and the passing curse still quivering on his lips, died. It was a terrible scene, sir. It must have been, I exclaimed. It must have been. But did the others show no repentance? None whatever, was the mournful reply. From the presence of the dead I went to the presence of the dying. A miner who had worked by his side in the shaft and was in some sort a comrade was standing by his cot as I drew near. Life was fast ebbing away and what might be done must be done quickly. I begged that I might pray with him. He refused. I gently urged him to repentance. He smiled in mockery, suddenly staring from the deadly stupor settling on him. He asked the miner if his enemy were living. He was told that the man had even then died. A look of fiendish satisfaction flashed through the gloom of his swarth face and lifting his clenched fists he brought them down, smiting the couch with dying energy, as if it were the head of his foe. "'Have you any wish to leave behind you?' asked his comrade. "'Yes,' he answered, and the words were hissed from beneath his teeth with indescribable fierceness. "'Yes. Make my grave close beside his. Damn him!' "'It was a terrible scene, a, a terrible scene!' exclaimed the old man, and for a moment he hid his face in his hands, as if the distance of thirty years were not enough to shut it from his eyes. At length he resumed. Unnatural and terrible as it was, we felt constrained, at least the miners did, to obey the dying behest. And so on the morrow, the men who had hated each other in life and hated each other in death were buried side by side. The old man paused at this point a moment, evidently oppressed by the memory of human passion and wickedness he had been narrating. At length his eyes wandered toward the two graves which nature had so impartially adorned, and upon which nature's sun was now shining so kindly, and he added, There have they slept these thirty years, side by side, unknown and unnoticed, save by some chance traveller like yourself and there they will sleep until the resurrection trump shall sound and they shall rise at its commanding summons. Surely, I exclaimed, surely that morn will not find them in their hatred. Surely, reverend sir, you cannot believe that when the trumpet of the Lord shall sound and men come forth in obedience to its call, these two shall rise with the old hatred in their souls. I cannot tell as one who speaks from knowledge, answered the old man. But I have studied the characters of men these sixty years, 
and noted the laws that seemed to underlie their changes, but have seen nothing to warrant the belief that character, once settled and confirmed, ever changes. Habits change, men acquire new expression for their powers, but the character itself remains permanent and solidly fixed as the everlasting hills, unless previous to death a change is wrought by the Spirit through repentance. But, sir, I exclaimed, does death then do nothing for us, and does the grave not bring a cooling to fierce the heat of human passion? Surely one might judge by the way in which men of your profession speak at funeral scenes, that at the close of life, even in the act of its closing, there comes to men a needed and blessed correction. Certainly I have heard them so express themselves, and myself have found comfort in the fact that amid the darkest clouds of death the mourner's eye could always see a star. I know that under the pressure of the scene, and of that human desire, strong in every sympathetic heart, so speaks some word that can console the present grief, answered the old man, that my brethren do thus speak at funerals, and I myself have often been prompted to do the same, and have often done it, but am confident that the impulse of the moment was not born of reason, and had no warrant in the scripture. For the scripture saith, As the tree falls, so shall it lie. And again, Let him who is filthy be filthy still. And in these sayings God does not, as I conceive, speak judgments on men, but simply asserts that the permanence of human character, which amid whatever ruin may have come to it, retains at last the dignity of being true unto itself. What hope is there for man, then? I cried out. If no blessed change may come, and all must be in the hereafter, even as they are here, if not swift mercy matches the swiftness of the fatal stroke, how can the Eternal Father adjust the feelings of his bosom to mortal circumstance? Venerable man, it is not so for me, who am untaught in doctrine to argue with one like you, clerically trained and wise with years. But eternity is long and life is short. The cradle and the grave are ever in sight. In short, the space and swift the passage from the one to the other. Must there not be at the end something to match the love that watched over us in the beginning, some sweet forgiveness to hover on tireless wing above our growing faults? some wisdom to constantly point out, and some love to persuade us into good, and in the end, if necessary, some almighty mercy to wipe, with one brave gesture of atoning pity, the stains of all our faults and sins away. Say, reverend man, does no such divine provision exist? It is but to say that the old man was profoundly affected by the appeal, which in the depth of my longing for humankind thus stirred. I poured forth with unconscious earnestness. He actually groaned aloud, as if on his spirit, which it needed but a glance of his benevolent face to see what was full of sweetest pity for all the erring. There rested the atlas-like load of human destiny. He groaned aloud, and rising from the rock on which he had been resting, he lifted his aged face to the skies, and with tears marking their course down his wrinkled cheeks, he said, The heavens are full of mercy, that I know, and motherhood without sex divides, at least with sterner elements, the throne. 
but man is a mighty being he is too great to change or be changed save by his own volition and when once the character is formed when the tree has firmly rooted itself and clasped the moveless rock beneath how shall it change whence shall come the wish to change how out of concentrated evil shall be born the holy purpose but young man he added as he took my hand you are young and i would not dim a single hope that lights the world ahead of you nor would i dispel any happy illusion even that may solace your grief when grief shall come for even illusions if they be comforting may serve a divine purpose no no live happily in hopeful thoughts of men for hope is often truer than logic but these men were matured their minds fully made up they died impenitent ay resisting overtures of mercy they went into the grave mutually resisting each other what is there in that silence yonder and he pointed his long finger toward the little eminence on which the two graves were what is there in the silence of their long sleep there to change them do men change their natures in slumber do they not rise as they lie down the trump will sound those graves will open those sleepers there will wake wake from their long sleep and i fear they will wake hating each other still for hatred lives with the immortality of all ill and with these words the old clergyman bade me good-bye and turned away for a moment his eyes studied the surrounding mountains as if they were taking their long and affectionate farewell for a moment he stood and listened to the soft musical lasping of the stream that murmured through the glade and then supported by the staff he held with feet that brushed the ruddy and rusting leaves aside as they walked on he passed slowly up the lane and disappeared from view my conversation with the old clergyman had given me ample food for meditation the strange history he had told and the fearful supposition he had advanced possessed my mind to the exclusion of any other subject the loneliness of the secluded spot when he had retired seemed lonelier than before he had joined me the two graves seemed to deepen the solitude they no longer suggested human companionship but alienation and between the two i seemed to see a great gulf fixed deep and wide such a relentless and interminable enemy digs between two souls would heaven's mercy ever bridge a gulf like that or would it yawn unbridged for ever was the old man right is human hatred immortal is there no solvent in the grave to check its eating corrosion or wash the deepening stain away thus i pondering questioned destiny and pushed my thoughts out into the eternities how many have questioned thus but has any human eye ever seen the stony lips of this dreadful sphinx open and answer or has any human ear ever heard a sure response the sun shone warmingly along the mountainside and showered the lonely opening with its beams the leaves were yellow and thick at my feet and my faithful horse dozed at his post i will wait for the coming of my companion i said and casting myself amid the warm leaves i leaned back against a moss-covered stone and thus half reclining fell asleep what are dreams 
Are they prophecies? Were the old prophets only dreamers? Are they senseless movements of the thinking faculty? What becomes of the mind when we sleep? Does it sleep too? Or is it able to receive impressions, which the slumbering senses are then unable to report? Are the visions that come to it mere fantasies, void of truth or reason? Who can tell? I only know that I slept and sleeping dreamed. And in that dream I was changed myself, and saw such changes in earth and men that I seek in vain for words with which to describe them. I said I was changed, I was. I was grown out of and above my old self, and had become a new being. New sight was mine, new hearing. I could see everywhere, I could hear everything. I ruled space. No sound, no motion escaped me. It was marvelous. This is the best I can do to describe the change in me. I said I saw changes, I did. There was no horizon in my vision. My sight was circular, and my eyes flashed great stones of observation around the globe instantly. How active men were, and how idle! How sad, and how merry! I saw them being born, I saw them dying. Some were praying, some were carousing. Some were dancing, some were fighting, and the mighty murmur of all their noises, their sobbing and their laughing, their groaning and their cheering, their praying and their cursing, as it swelled up from the earth and rolled its waves of sound around the globe, came collectively and individually into my ears, even as ordinary sound is heard by us in waking moments. What a capacity I was! while like a god I lay, seeing the whole world and hearing all its varied noises. Does the body dwarf us so? Does it bind us with wreaths of limitation, as the Philistines did Samson? And is death but the snapping of the cords, and the severance of which there comes back to us the mighty and original strength? I wonder. Suddenly, even as I was looking with this all-perceiving vision, and listening with this all-receiving sense of hearing, silence fell on the world. Not a noise, not a voice, not a whisper. The guns of war were dumb, men were dumb, volcanoes were smothered by their last explosion, and their craters yawned silently. The waves stiffened and stood rigid, Birds, checked in mid-flight, hung fixed as if nailed to the sky. All living things stood still. The hush of an awful expectation fell on the world. Next, darkness. Darkness, dense, instant, impenetrable. No sun, no moon, no star, no taper, no spark. The darkness did not come. It was. The sun did not fade. The moon did not wane. The stars did not grow dim by degrees. The fires of the earth did not pale. The candles did not flicker. All lights on the instant and the twinkling of an eye exploded and went out. No noise, no light. Silence and darkness over all the earth. The world listened. Nature hid her face and waited. What was coming? A noise, a sound as of many waters, a peal as of a mammoth bell rung by mighty and invisible hands, 
in an invisible belfry. A blast, a trumpet note, blown by immeasurable power, a note round, full, immense, that captured the universe and filled it so that its very borders rang. The last trump. The field in which I lay shook. A thrill as of awful terror ran through the sod. The turf seemed to creep and shrivel with fear. The two graves opened. The two men rose, and each standing in his coffin looked at the other. The same, great God, the very same as when they died. They had slept a thousand years, ten thousand, but all the years had not changed them a whit. For the same hatred glared in their faces as they stood in the resurrection as when they died, cursing each other in the cabins that stood by the gurgling stream. Yea, there they were, unchanged by all the years that had come and gone since their bodies had been buried side by side. In that little clearing, in the Canadian woods, ten thousand years before. Do those wretches know what an eternity there is before them? I said to myself as I gazed in horror at the spectacle. I will go and plead with them. And I was on the point of starting up when I felt a shock, a terrible shock, as if the solid earth had exploded. And then another, more terrible than the former. I screamed. My eyes sprang open. Wake up! Wake up! It was my companion who was shaking me. Wake up! What are you dreaming about, old boy? Thank God it was a dream. Thank God! Nothing but a dream. Perhaps the old pastor was wrong. Perhaps men do change. Perhaps. End of chapter 12